I'm Ryan from the Dad.io podcast, a show dedicated to dorky dads everywhere. Part of the Gonna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other dadalicious geeky shows at gonnageeknetwork.com. Talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. The intellectual podcast starts now. That's right. The Intellectual Podcast starts right now. I'm your host, David S. Dawson. And with me today is none other than Larry Nemetrek, Dr. Trek. Welcome to the show, <laughs> sir. Hey, thank you. The intellectual with an X. That's right. You need to have that in your... <laughs> it's, uh, it, I found it on... Um, oh, what's the website uh, where you go for slang definitions i forget the name of it urban dictionary or urban dictionary i went to urban dictionary and intellectual with an x is a a conversation between two people that's uh intellectually stimulating to the point of intellectual orgasm okay so i was like that sounds like a good name for intellectually that's a that's a high bar though boy (laughs) well it'll uh, be easy bar with a guest like you yourself on the show today oh okay okay Um, i'll try to get my intellectualism up to an x level then (laughs) (laughs) well the thing for me is it's a it's a real pleasure to have you on the show um I was I, I had the honor of sharing the stage with you at Comic Con this past year on oh, a well. podcasting panel. Mutual, and, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it <laughs> turns out we have a mutual friend in Neil Halford, and uh, and I never thought I'd get to actually meet uh, Larry Nemechek, who who's been working on the Con of Wrath with Neil for as long as I've known him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forty seven years. No, actually, yeah. well, we're, that's one thing. We're we're uh, I had a donor come through here recently, and we we're actually working on the the major edit and uh, have a plan. We have a plan and actually money to put it into action to get, get things wrapped up. Excellent. The documentary there. So. Uh, just for our listeners sake, um, can you give us a little bit of background on the Connor Rath and, and <laughs> how long you guys have been uh, trying to get that, that together and done? Well, the Con of Rath is, uh, which I think is a cute title, but it's not mine. It's the real life story of, um, of the biggest event, well, I say uh, in 1982, the the year that the Wrath of Khan, the Star Trek, the second movie, you know, with Ricardo Montalban, that a lot of the, the say, best Star Trek movie. I was going to say what many people <laughs> say is still the best. It's certainly the bar that all all Star Trek movies are measured against. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, and what what producers aspire to sometimes to their peril, but uh, <laughs> it's like. Uh, Two weeks after that, this group in Houston, and this is only ten. This is only ten years into uh, the Star Trek convention era, which really is the era that led to all the big Comic Cons today. Because Star Trek uh, science fiction fans had had been meeting in conventions and had meetups you know, to get together since the 30s, at least with first fandom. But sci-fi conventions had always been about authors and artists. And never about media, TV, and movies because, you know, to be blunt, they were usually crap. And then you had the rare, you know, gems that you easy to remember. Oh, Forbidden Planet. No, oh, Day the Earth Stood Still. And oh, Twilight Zone. But most of the time, you know, sci-fi was the, the you know, the B-movies and the bug-eyed monsters and all that. And most sci-fi fans, when they're thrilled to get one like that, over the years used to be able to, you know, roll their eyes and and uh, talk about, well, you've got to go back to the classics because who can trust, you know, media to do that? Well... That started to change with, you know, with, with actual, and Twilight Zone was a notable exception. It was, it was an anthology series, right? So 
but you know you could just for every star trek there was a, a lost in space or a captain video or you know whatever or you right. know, even flash gordon and you know however they started when they got the screen they were just atrocious even though fondly remembered you know if you're eight but atrocious if you're an adult well there's a serious amount of camp involved in all of them well well right if you even if you can even you know intellectualize it that far even <laughs> you know but star trek was kind of the beginning of the change and star trek was such a pioneer for everything aside from itself on the meta level everything that we had this this world we live in today where we're drenched in superheroes and sci-fi you know and comic cons are not something that keep you in the closet they're what lets you out of the closet there is no more closet because there are dollar signs attached to everything and you know cities compete to have you <laughs> come in and bring in the tax revenue whereas you know 20 and 30 years ago you could you could barely beg your way into getting somebody to take a, a science fiction convention seriously so star trek was the pioneer of all that even even as it's kind of been in fallow times lately until until here recently with the comeback now so um but in 1982 uh on its own level Star Trek was having a great a great ride and the Wrath of Khan was bringing a lot of attention starting to make baby steps toward you know mainstream acceptance but it was you were still very much you know in the sci-fi closet in the closet if not you know among your your tribe you were fine but it had only <laughs> been 10 years since that first New York Star Trek convention kind of started the revolution and right. it was a really wide the, the the world of conventions and promoters and all that was still a pretty wide open Wild West, and a, a well, I'll say a colorful characters did had came up an idea in in Houston not just to have a you know uh, talks and Q and A and autograph sessions and the standard trappings, but to have to have Star Trek's first and really pop culture's first big arena show, basically the first big rock concert for Star Trek and by extension sci-fi. And right. it's called the Ultimate Fantasy, and they were going to have the whole cast come together, which had, had been attempted once or twice and been off by one body. They wasn't even going to be. They had there was a regular convention going on that they had every year, their big Houston uh, privately run convention called Houston Con. But this was going to be an, a literal arena show. It's going to be in the old Summit Arena, where uh, the Houston Rockets used to play ball, where all the traveling, you know, uh, mu musicals and rock concerts would come to. And they literally rented it out and then thought they sold tickets enough to have three shows at 18,000 seats apiece wow. as an adjunct to this convention. And, uh, you know, had back then before the Internet had Starlog Magazine was the big sci-fi Bible in the way you knew what was going on. Uh, they yeah, had I remember involved. Starlog. Yeah, full page ads in Starlog. And um, I was, you know, I grew up uh, in early adulthood in Oklahoma, around Oklahoma City and, and uh, Norman. And that's where I, I saw it there, and it's, it was like eight hours down I-35 to Houston um, and branch over. And, uh, and I went down with a couple of my friends. So the bottom line here is that uh, we didn't know it at the time, and we sure didn't know it later on. But um, at the time, we had no idea that for all this, you know, all these great plans, um, that the show was not quite going to go the way it was planned. And... <laughs> And uh, and uh, we had it was kind of a debacle of our weekend, and we got through it, and um, and then flash forward to 2010, and I'm at a convention after party, and I heard a guy talking about the Con of Wrath. Oh, I should say I heard people talking about the the uh, Houston Con that year, and the and the Ultimate Fantasy, 
aka the ultimate fallacy, aka the ultimate fuck up, <laughs> the ultimate, you know. <laughs> and and most of all, the con of wrath, which someone named it that weekend, long enough where some button makers in the dealer's room were making I survived the con of wrath buttons. Hilarious. And, um, <laughs> and so anyway, I met a guy just a few years back that uh, was talking about being there. And I heard him and I said, oh, you were there? And he says, I was the tech director for the stage. And at the time, I was really, you know, it seemed like an eternity ago now, but I was really trying to find another way. To, I mean, Star Trek was, was already in the fallow years after Enterprise was canceled in 2005. Right. And the J.J. movies had started up, but they were, you know, an alternate universe, and they were movies, and they were only two or three years, and we still weren't back into full-blown, you know, Trek production, even while everything else was exploding around us. And I thought, a light bulb just went, I met this guy, and a light bulb just went off, one of the biggest ones I've ever had, that, you know, oh my God, this needs to be preserved. No, this needs to be preserved, just not audio recordings. Like, I've interviewed, you know, I've, I've been a journalist and a, and a theater-trained actor for years and worked in news and uh, authored books and, and then got, you know, uh, leveraged that into getting a... a a licensed book done for The Next Generation. I wrote the book called The Next Generation Companion that thousands and thousands of people bought. It was like the biggest selling Star Trek nonfiction book in, in ages. And st that and, and then it was probably taught by the Star Trek Encyclopedia, but those remain kind of the biggest two books in, in licensed official publishing history. But I, kind of, I come from that background and, and, and had a front row seat. We moved to LA and all that, but I had never done anything in media and when I was talking to this guy as things were retrenching a little bit there and I was wondering what where to go next um, I thought no don't just you know audio interviews get this on camera <laughs> and I thought um, you know archive it and then I thought no because we're, we're in a visual world here he said in 2010 right and, uh, <laughs> and and then I thought nope you know what I've been looking for something to do hell I can do this we can do this as a documentary I, I'd met some people that had done very not low budget but they'd found a way to to do a but to do documentaries without you know spending a ton of money if they stretched it out just them and a right. camera and maybe one other person, right? And that's the path I started on. So the con of wrath started with him. I needed I wanted to have some celebrities, but I knew it wouldn't be just celebrities. It would be the fans and the dealers and all. Because the thing about that weekend was that it was amazing to me in hindsight how to me it was like a, a phoenix rising story, or it was like a riches to rags to riches because. The show did go on. I've known of other convention-type events that blew up on the promoters. Sometimes it should have, unfairly on the fans. But this was kind of, if not the first one, at least from the height of like a golden era and before everything got so, you know, uh, in internet web-driven, before we had 24-7 media, before we had social media, the internet, we knew everything before it happened. And the minute something did happen... You know, it was tweeted and, and and posted all around the world. And it was just a simpler, gentler time. And <laughs> <too. laughs> let me say that. But um, I, I just thought it was, but it was also kind of a forerunner of the world of today. So I was mm -hmm. really intrigued on how much things have changed, but also how things have not changed at all. You know, with, right. with fans and with celebrities and with the middlemen and with organizers and with the dealers and Everybody involved in the community. And what was amazing about that weekend that was different than anything that I knew about so afterwards was that no matter what happened, every circle, the, the actors, you know, the professional guests, the fans, the organizers, and the dealers, primarily, those circles, everybody 
kept the thing going. It didn't like collapse in a day, like on a Friday, uh, for a few hours and then go. They they followed the script all three days, <laughs> and actually struggled to Sunday, and then everyone went their ways, <laughs> and were changed forever. No, um, well, maybe in some ways. So anyway, that all that all fl- and then I, along the way, some threads that I wanted to talk about in in how things, how much things have changed, and how much they haven't. So that's the con of wrath. And I uh, said I wouldn't if I, I needed at least uh, Walter Koenig, who kind of saved the day among the tech side of things, and Hart Bennett, uh, the late great Hart Bennett, who was the producer of the most of the uh, original series movies mm-hmm. from two through five, and uh, who who brought in Nick Meyer that saved the Rathacon and uh, saved this show. He got every, he got all the actors to stay because he was worried about how the if this if it got out to the press, what a meltdown would look like to Paramount and to Star Trek, which it just was only about two weeks into the hit the box office of of the Con of Wrath and didn't want anything to, you know, throw mud on that. You know, to yeah, that you, you absolutely don't want negative press going out in the midst right. of some of the best press Trek ever ever got. Right, right. right. And again, <laughs> at the time there's no internet. So it was totally going to be news and you know, traditional news and T V radio and and fan buzz to some extent. So I, but when I started this, I thought, okay, I need some of them. I don't need about all of them. And of course, by this time, um, D. Kelly and Jimmy Doohan, you know, McCoy and Scotty, and uh, had had passed away. And Merritt Buttrick, and they they wound up with everyone, including Kirstie Alley and Merritt Buttrick, except for Leonard Nimoy. But then, not for lack of trying, and not for Leonard Nimoy trying, in the hmm. end, which was a side story in itself. So. Um, so anyway, both Harv Bennett and Walter, who I, and I knew Harv and Walter and George and Michelle would probably do it, and I didn't know about Shatner, but uh, I thought, well, well, I don't need all of them. I just need a couple of them at least. And when Harv and Walter both said, oh, not just yes, but hell yes, um, then I went, okay, we're fine. And then I wound up getting George and Michelle. Thank goodness we got to Michelle, and we did because her health has been going down lately. But Right. Um, and uh, Laura Banks, who was one of Khan's girls, who was at the who was at the show that weekend, and uh, I'm I'm gonna still to make an inroad to Shatner, and uh, and I've talked to Kirsty's manager once, who was interested. I just need to circle back, but I've got most of the uh, and then we had Kara Quinn, who was the publisher of Starlog, who was there, and and uh, people and we have Wendy uh, Wendy Doohan, Jimmy Doohan's widow, talks and. Uh, among that among that level, but then we've also got all the organizers, most of whom still are in Houston, and tons of fans all over the country, and a ton of dealers, some of whom are still on the con circuit, which is... I decided I could almost do a documentary someday. I want to call it Connie's instead of Connie's. <laughs> <laughs> and have it be all these dealers that have been out on the on the, you know, vendors that have been on the dealer circuit, on the convention circuit since the 80s and before, so... Oh, that'd be a fascinating film. So, yeah, so then the last few years, I just, I knew content, I was good, and my, and my DP, but I didn't know about landing it. And now the last year or two, uh, and I've had a guy who was going to edit it, but I just didn't know about, you know, money and, and where to go. And, of course, in the last eight years, we've had a revolution in, in the back end of things. Right. Starting with Netflix and, and on and on and on. So, anyway, now we've got uh, the last year or so, finally, and I knew it was going to be slow motion. So, uh, I didn't, it wasn't like, oh, here's a, here's a nine-month funded documentary cycle we're going to churn it out you know in a year or whatever i always knew it was going to be like a shade tree 
process. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the great and things about documentaries yeah. is they're, 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 they're oftentimes passion projects of the filmmaker themselves. Like they just have an obsession to tell that story. And for me as an outside observer, like knowing about this documentary for so many years, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm, I'm really Neil, anxious Neil, of course, to see being it. My, Neil being you know? my, my DP. Yes. Yeah. And Neil's, Neil's fantastic. He's been on this show a couple times. Um, and, and he's talked a bit about, you know, working on, on the film as well. So. <laughs> yeah. He's well, and he's got, he's got other things going now, but I mean, and, and as do I, one thing it's interesting was this was going to be my, my sanity project to, Hey, look world, I can do this. Well, what's interesting is since then, you know, my world has changed. The, the media landscape has changed big time. Right. It keeps evolving. And my own world has, um, has, uh, multiplied here now with some of the other things that I'm, I'm doing still all with a foot in, in Star Trek, hopefully. So, well, what, what are all the various Trek projects you have running? Yeah. So, well, so you're, uh, you're on a, you're on a couple podcasts, right? I have, well, yes. In the, in podcast world, one of the things I, about that same time within a year of starting this 2011, 2012, I um, got acquainted with a guy, uh, Chris Jones or C. Brian Jones, on Twitter, uh, who's he's an expat American uh, from Alabama, loves college football too, but um, he's lived, uh, got married, uh, and now separated in Japan, had a family, but is very much grounded there and works in journalism, but he's located in Japan, not Tokyo per se. He's about two hours out of Tokyo. But he founded a podcast and has now grown into a network called Trek FM, and his original podcast, uh, The Ready Room, which, you know, they're all there's a podcast for every Trek series, and he was hosting a lot of them. And the last two or three years' work and, and some health issues um, that he's now that he's now gotten through, but he's he's really trained up uh, an army of um, oh, you know a dozen or so uh, podcasters. Some are still with him, some are, are doing other shows, but they've got a show for every Star Trek series, and they talk about the music and the book world and the comics world and the fan film world and. And uh, the anthropology side of things, and the the you know the psychological side of Trek, and it's kind of amazing. Um, yeah. The the animated and the Saturdays version of uh, of Trek and the and the landscape of the seventies. Um, and I was a guest on his flagship show, The Ready Room, for a long time, and still am occasionally. But uh, I at the time I thought you know he he would come back and say, "Wow, Larry, you're." Uh, your shows come back anytime. Let's have you on because when you're on is our, is our highest downloads <laughs> and that's our highest count. I was like, okay, I should probably be doing this myself, but I don't <laughs> want to just pile on, you know? So I thought, well, I'm going to hang back and I'll just guest on other people's and, you know, soak up that exposure and promotion and experience. And then at some point I'll do my own, but if it is, it needs to be something a little different. So I, back in my head, I was always going to do a video, you know, whatever. Well, that was eight years ago. Now they're out there. But a couple of years ago, the Roddenberry's, Gene Roddenberry's son Rod, as they have tried to figure out what to do with their lives and what his company would do now, mm -hmm. uh, started a podcast and which has now grown into a small network and growing. Uh, Rod Roddenberry Podcast Network and uh, passed the flagship and a couple others that came aboard came over to them. Um, we they came in with the idea to start what's now called the Trek Files, which is going through Gene's papers. I mean, some things are at, a lot of things are in in uh, at the UCLA Library Archives, like scripts and notes. 
but he has a lot of things like correspondence and memos and still script notes and things. And a lot of unseen stuff from the 70s, the movies that didn't get made or almost got made. And, it's a um, fascinating we're show. We're going through that. And it's only 15, 20 minutes. So they can't, I still have an idea for a video show I want to do that we're going to work on. But it's 15, 20 minutes only. It's not like an hour and a half, like mm-hmm. everything else I've been a part of. And um, yeah, it's great. It was a great uh, opportunity. And I love working with it. And it's right as, you know, it's regular as rain every Tuesday. We take a, we're in the middle of a hiatus, a month hiatus, but we've, you know, churned out two seasons, 24 episodes a season, and we have 48 in the can now. And I, yeah. and, and guests. So I've been able to access the people I have known over the years. And we've got not just, and I love all the podcasts. People are, people are podcasting from where they are. But um, <laughs> we've had Doug Drexler and Dorothy Fontana and, uh, and, B. Joe and John Trimble, who were the original fans that saved the show, and and um, and well, I'm leaving people out. Um, Lisa Clink and uh, yeah, it's a really fantastic show. If if anybody listening to this show hasn't heard it, like make sure you're listening to the Trek Files. Um, I only recently started listening myself. And I've gone back and listened to oh, okay. like everything from this season, and I'm like halfway through the first season now. And <laughs> well, you don't. Have and, to, I mean, I'm uh, glad you, know, you don't have to say that. Just to be no, I, I, I'm having an absolute back, blast listening to it, especially especially the TNG stuff because you know that's that's my trek. You know, I mm-hmm. was I was in junior high when TNG debuted, and you know Wesley Crusher was me on screen you know okay um and i love the wesley crusher character and uh listening to the discussions you, you guys were not one about, of the wesley haters you were i was definitely not a wesley hater i mean i uh you know will wheaton was in uh stand by me and uh, you know i recognized the character he played in that gordy was was the character i related to and then when he's suddenly on star trek as wesley crusher i was like oh my gosh there's a there's a kid on this show like who uh, i i uh, i feel akin to and it really made a huge impact for me um that it was okay to be smart and it was okay to be kind of awkward and nerdy and (laughs) you know that you could still do amazing things in the world it was for me it was wonderful i didn't know all the backlash about Wesley until much, much later <laughs> when I started uh, reading uh, Will Wheaton's blog. <laughs> oh, I was yeah. like, oh, my God, that's horrible. Yeah, well, I remember at the time, you know, knowing that the, the character as a character in a show, uh, not as a role model, maybe, but as a character in a show was a little problematic. I knew some of the, you know, means even pre-internet. Uh, but but I, my whole point was like, well, you bozos, if you don't like it, he's a 16-year-old kid. It's the writers writing the role. Right. Like, that's where your problem is. And, you know, and you could – now we, you know, we have the Chaos in the Bridge documentary and we know what – and I, you know, I did my book in 92 and it was it was a licensed book and I couldn't – I was determined not to have it be – in fact, Ira Bear and Ron Moore, both – one of them, I remember uh, – I remember Ira said, don't go vanilla – because it's licensed, right? He's like, don't go vanilla. And I remember Ron Moore saying, don't go Pravda. So I, I couldn't get into, some people didn't want to talk. It was so soon after all the craziness of the first couple of years in the writer's room with Next Generation. And if you hadn't seen the documentary, um, Chaos on the Bridge that Shatner did, which was finally getting some of this on camera. And, and I guess 
the statute of limitations personally had run out, I guess, for people. So they finally got this down. But I, anything like that in my book, even that that close to the actual events, if people didn't want to go there, I at least said there were creative issues. I mean, I didn't like just paper over the reason for things. Right. But yeah, the the first couple of years were insanely crazy for a host of reasons. And uh, but poor Will. It's but even at the time, my point is, I'd say. Jesus Christ, you can see the credits changing every other week on the show. It's like, yell at the writers. Don't yell at them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, did you hear the episode that, of the Trek Files where we, we a couple of them I think have actually made news. We dug out the original version, uh, the format for The Next Generation had Gene not wanting to, got it, to get involved because he, you know he died six years later. His right. health was already going down a little bit. But... Um, uh, we found the original, like all Klingons, all Federation <laughs> format of Next Generation that really sounds like it was developed in the movie era. Like it sounds like it was right out of a few years past, you know, 20 years after after the, the mid-70s or the mid-80s, after Voyage Home and and all of that, where you were with the 80s Trek movies. And uh, if you haven't heard that, it's fascinating. They had a complete format and pilot outline and a season outline set up and then gene saw it and was like oh no i'm gonna come back and do the show <laughs> and then what we got was what we got but to find this kind of preserved in amber and realize that probably only six or eight people saw it back in the day you know well is, and that's the thing as a as a film and television person myself the stuff you're pulling out and kind of discovering things that uh, you know, normal people don't get to see, you know, these, these actual documents of the development of these projects because everybody, everybody backseat directs. Or the non-development. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody backseat directs the, the Trek world, the Star Wars world, like everybody's got their opinion, but to, to see these documents of the communications back and forth between the producers and the writers and the disagreements and, uh, to, to even fathom how anything makes it to screen <laughs> sometimes is just, it's incredible. And it's, it's such a fascinating show as a fan, as a filmmaker, as a, as a nerd, <laughs> you know, I just, I get yeah. such a kick out of every episode because there's so much to, to consume with it as a media watcher. Well, you know, and, yeah. and John champion, who is the co-host of mission log and, uh, and is a and is a Trek pundit in his own right to a lot of extent. Um, he's mm -hmm. my go-to, and he produces the show. He's there with me, so it's the two of us. He's the tech backbone for it, but um, uh, he's my go-to guest. But apart from John, the guest line is: I try to make sure it's always someone who got a paycheck from Trek. So I, again, yeah. I love my podcast world community. There are tons of people I could have on. Um, even even other and you know someday I may stretch that to Star Trek authors, but there are so many Trek authors of the, especially nonfiction who who worked on the show and that's why they did their books. But um, but yeah um, oh uh, Renee Chavaria was another guest who worked you know, came to mm -hmm. Next Generation and did DS Nine and now has gone off in, in the in the media world. But it's in my other my other passion project that I'm growing right now, which is Portal Forty Seven that I want to talk about in a minute, but. The idea for everything, I have this banner called Trekland because I, at one point, somebody said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an author, I'm an editor, I'm a host, I'm an interviewer, I'm an archivist, I'm an actor sometimes. Uh, multi-hyphenate. Yeah, multi-hyphenate. But I, before <laughs> I knew to say multi-hyphenate and after I, you know, I was worried about saying, seeming like, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. 
And right. I finally started saying, well, you know, I, I work in Truckland, and, and I do have a degree in journalism. I do have a degree in theater. Uh, but I, And that's where Truckland came from. And Dr. Trek goes back. Even, it was just a joke thing I did when we were doing our newsletter of our club. <laughs> and I had a column. Uh, and it turned into very quickly me just giving the, the upcoming lineup from Next Gen from the publicity people. Because uh, I worked at a newspaper, and I had it like two months ahead of everybody else. But right. uh, um, I just had a column called Ask Dr. Trek, and, and I come back to that. I've embraced that instead of running away from it, which is all my marketing <laughs> friends are like, no, no, this is great. I'm like, I can't say that. That's too, that's too thrilling. And now I get it. Now I understand that I, it's like when you're in a Chiron box and you need a second line, you know, or you're in a, in a grid in a program guide in a convention, you got Larry Nimichek, Dr. Trek just kind of gets you most of the way there <laughs> without it, all the yeah, hype. It's simple. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, but I, I, one thing is, um, we have a great discussion with John. But I, at least half the shows or more, I do have a guest from real world Star Trek on, and I mm -hmm. try to pull topics that apply to them. But for the audience's sake, and I don't know if you've detected this, what we always try to do is not just if you're a Trek historian or if you're a fan and you're over a certain age and you remember the original series or the reruns or the Next Generation Origins. Say you've just come along in the Fallow Times or the JJ verse or, or now with Discovery. What I always try to do is pull really fun documents, sometimes really historical. Not just scripts and script memos, but we have correspondence to Gene. We have letters that Gene wrote to people from celebrities, from fans, from right. other people he's trying to do projects with. We've got like inter introductions and forewords to books he's written. We've got interviews that he did in in penthouse we've got you know in in four in uh, forum in uh what was the penthouse sci-fi uh magazine i've gone blank and it's just oh, been recently uh, there was a there was an all science fiction not not adult leveled uh oh i'm gonna shoot myself anyway <laughs> we've got um that that that, that uh, they did um but uh like galaxy or not galaxy but anyway they uh We've got all this paper material from Gene, and not just Trek, but his work on The Lieutenant, his show before Star Trek, all right. the pitches. He's, we've got pitches from the 50s and early 60s that he did. We've got uh, some of his notes and things from Have Gun, Will Travel when he was yeah, on I, staff. I found all of that yeah. stuff really fascinating because right. I didn't know any of that history about Gene. The biggest so he, he never won It's been a revelation for Emmy. me. He never won an Emmy, but he won a Writers Guild, you know, peers award for one of his scripts for uh for have gun will travel but yeah the shows that he did that made it and the shows that he's pitched that didn't make it and and the 70s the the tv movies the pax movies earth 2 and all of those um but to me it's even if it's not star trek it's telling you about gene mm -hmm. and therefore it's telling you something about eventual star trek uh, you know um the quester tapes and Quester, his humanoid looking for human answers, which was a prototype that became Data, but it right. was a it was a shot and filmed uh, movie. And then we've got the big movies in the seventies when the comeback for Trek was on. First, the God Thing, or later, these were all named later on because everything for for ten years was Star Trek Two, <laughs> no matter what it was, <laughs> you know, until the real start. You know, even the motion picture was Star Trek Two at first, but uh, the right. God Thing and his own, and then when he was put aside. But he was still involved with what we now call Planet of the Titans. 
But it was the all, you know, and the animated series, and the animated series that almost came to be before the animated series on NBC Saturday morning that we remember. So all of these things, if they're not strictly about Star Trek, they're about Gene and his view of the world and his evolving view of the world coming through in something else. So if you're a Star Trek fan, you can see roots of Trek in all these through Gene. Yeah. Even if you're, we found threads that affected. Um, we found a phrase right out of a memo on early next gen that directly applies to the pilots of discovery. So, hmm. you know, so that's the gems we found because we want it to be not just for, you know, we want anybody under 30 to tune in and that's a Trek fan to find yeah. something or who's borderline, who's just a pop culture fan and goes, Oh, and gets a bigger picture of not just star Trek, but of Gene and everything he's touched. And then maybe that comes full circle back to, you know, yeah. Well, I think it's it's it, it's easy to kind of forget because everybody talks about how the studios create stuff. But, you know, behind the studios are the people who actually put pen to paper or type oh, yeah. in today and, and come up with ideas and thoughts. And all the background that you guys are, are drumming up on Gene is fascinating to me because, you know, those experiences kind of educate the person who then... Mm-hmm. educates what the show becomes and kind of this thread that I've been hearing for a little while on the Trek files is this gene growing into the great bird of the galaxy. And right. And when did he kind of start cultivating that himself? <laughs> and, <laughs> the legend you know, in his own mind kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of playing into yeah. that legendary status and stuff. And, and as a producer, I get how that, kind of becomes important too, because that's how you get to start selling your projects is by kind of believing your own hype a little bit. Right. Um, well, and Star Trek so was the biggest amazing. seller for him. And in the right. second, he was, see the, the, at a meta level, the other part of the start of the Trek files is, and, and this is what I do with, with all my projects too. It's what's going to come through in the, in the, in the con of wrath. And it's a big part of portal 47 too. But the other part is just being aware that our, everybody today you know, however old you are, if you're lucky enough to be older, you've lived through some of these, the turns in the tech and mm-hmm. the media landscape and celebrity and fandoms and mm-hmm. just, you know, the way things are delivered and the way we look at the, and, and, you know, and how. And if you're younger, you don't, you're out of the, you know, the anthropology of culture of how, you know, in the, in how it affects Star Trek and the way it's produced. So on a very basic level, the guys in the 60s show, you know, uh, the, the SAG, the, the, the actors, writers, directors being above the line and you getting residuals. Well, you got you got an original run and you got two reruns and that's all anything was covered because it was, you know, forget DVDs or VHS tapes. <laughs> right? You didn't have, you know, syndication wasn't a big thing. So the very, yeah. you know, Star Trek is so cutting edge on, on the way ratings are measured, on the, on the reusability of the media and the content and it gets caught up on the cutting edge. It's got, you know, it's right on the cutting edge, but it's on the on the losing side. All these actors, Gene on down, major production people, they, you know, they got paid for one run and two reruns, and then the seventies comes along, syndication explodes that no one thought about or knew about in the sixties. They're all gods, and there's they can't pay their rent and mortgage. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, you talk about the Genius <laughs> College Tour, and they're in that whipsaw effect, and then the motion picture comes along, and you know, and every it's almost like when there's a strike, it's like affected. <laughs> Strikes happen because the world has changed, and they're not getting paid for actors or writers or directors or whatever. And right, and um, and then you think about the '80s and tapes, and but now we've got disposable media, 
you know, and residuals and what does that, and streaming and what does that look like? And one of the meta levels of the Trek files is helping, you know, and the internet and social media and what I call paper and stamps fandom and how, you know, one of the things I've said um, all along here is how Star Trek, you know, Rick Berman one time said porn and Star Trek are what built the internet. <laughs> you yeah, know, but but uh, but but Star Trek, I say, you know, was the invented the internet with paper and stamps because nothing could come along on a sustained level. You know, you had a rock band, you had Rudolph Valentino or or or, or Elvis Presley or you know Frank Sinatra or the Beatles, but nothing drove passion to a fan base to the degree and the sustained level. That Star Trek did. It was it was the latest fad for yeah. The, the monkeys had a revival letter writing campaign too, but right. you know for a year it didn't go on and on and on and build. In the seventies, Star Trek was bigger than it had ever been in the sixties, and then flash forward another generation. You know you had original series fans. There was the loud ten percent yelling about Next Generation mm-hmm. and hated it, mm-hmm. but they didn't get the paradigm change. You know oh we're, we're it's not just a show; it's a universe now. And the next generation numbers became way bigger than the original series numbers had ever been. So helping people see those changes in the, all the different layers, you know, the, of the cultural landscape. And, and speaking up for early, now we, you know, we're, we're drowning in Comic-Coniness. And it's like, well, you know, it was Star Trek and those early media cons that changed the name of the game. Mm-hmm. And had, you know, what you're going to have actors and writers not just the sci-fi authors here well that's that's so shallow it's like no it's a whole different kind of thing (laughs) and along the way the science fiction on screen got better and better and better but right well we're in the midst of one of those major shifts and changes too with discovery being on cbs Mm -hmm. all access Mm -hmm. and personally i love it I, I, you know, I, I get the complaints some people had of season one i'm really digging season two um but the one complaint I hear from more and more people is I don't want to spend $8 a month just to watch Star Trek. <laughs> and it's like, really guys? Like you pay 12 or 16 bucks to go watch a movie. <laughs> you yeah, know, what do you, you pay get, for your coffee every other you day? Get, right? You get double the amount of entertainment in a month to watch Star Trek for the same, for half, half the yeah. price of a movie ticket. And, and these episodes look as good as anything in the cinema. <laughs> I, you know, but people just like to complain, I think, about new things and, and shifts in the way things are done. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I love not having to sit through commercials during my trek. Like, it's nice. <laughs> well, well, right, right, right. Well, you know, it's they're rapidly one of the and, and one of the things I do is I have a live. I should tell everybody I have a live Facebook show at one o'clock on Tuesdays Pacific on my on my uh, Facebook trek page. On my Trek, Larry Nemechek's Trekland is my my Trek Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the umbrella page, and I have one for Portal Forty Seven, one for the Con of Wrath, and all that. But it, it on my Trekland page, it went on Tuesdays. I have um, up to it's, I, my target time is forty five minutes, and we do live Q and A with whoever's watching. But I have a you know I have a basically a little little editorial, a little op ed that I start with commentary, and then. Um, and then I there's a ratings group that's trying to do internet ratings uh, with their own metrics for all the digital shows that don't have Nielsen's mm-hmm. their analytics. And I try to I review the ratings there, especially vis-a-vis Discovery. And then we have Q and A. And um, but that's one of the one of the themes coming through there is that that I try to point out to people, connect the dots. 
is that this is we're about to explode. They've already announced a lot of other. You know, we're back in the business of having a real. It's the antithesis of oh, it's a movie every four years, if anything. Now we're back into having, even though they're short seasons, they're streaming seasons. Uh, we're back to having Trek all the time, everywhere, with all these new the Picard series coming out and the Section yeah. Thirty One series coming out. And well, I, li- I like I that they're going to be short seasons because I, I like that European model. You have less filler episodes, right? right. Everything's well, important. Right, right. You've got less. Oh, the writers were exhausted in their seventh inning stretch <laughs> to get through the year, kind of right. thing. But and you know, and a lot of the complaint, everything from buying to well, I'm going to watch it for the three months, and then and it, you know, CBS All Access is a startup; it can't compare to Netflix's catalog. Well, of course, you're just around at the very beginning, but of course they want to maximize. I mean, one of the one of the things to the '80s and '90s was this collision of you know commercialism and and fanishness in Trek, and the, there was a point. There's been a point where. Whatever else it's faults, the, the commercial world of Trek at the height of, inter, of Enterprise, the alignment of the commercial side and what fans wanted was pretty, not in production so much, but like licensing world and things, was pretty much in alignment because eventually the long process, whoever at Paramount and or CBS figure out that, you know, if we make what the fans want, we'll probably make more money. You know? <laughs> Imagine that. And you get into an alignment there and, and then we're back into colliding that again. But it's you know, the show's the show was what it was because it had horrible, as I keep saying, had horrible birthing pangs. And if it had been anything else but Star Trek, the plug would have been pool. Star Trek and launching a new service that the whole world was watching. They wouldn't have stayed stuck with it and had it birth. So yes, it had a rough delivery, but it fin- it landed amazingly and the second season was gonna be even with the you know, the, the ruffles they've had since then even. It's so much better a show, but like, well, duh. And all these new series they're launching will, will benefit from all that, too. So, well, and I, and I think it's, I think it's funny. I think people forget the first season of TNG was oh, yeah. really hit or miss. Well, we tried to point that out to the first season. You know, there's a joke that no Star Trek uh, after the original, no Star Trek is worth really watching until the third season. So, <laughs> to one degree or another. So, um, but you know, Discovery is there faster. But then I said, well, we're in streaming now. So, you know, measure Discovery in dog years or measure Discovery in, you know, streaming years. It's like the second season is already like three seasons of regular long form, old school. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's been through the mill to the point where it's like two regular years already. But no, those kinds of things are like what I try to point out to people. And, and the audience is way savvier than even 10 years ago, thanks to the internet and 24-7. And, and we have so much behind-the-scenes material out there. But that's always been what my, if you couldn't tell, that's been my favorite. I mean, I love the characters and shipping, you know, like we have all the little buzzwords <laughs> for everything. Oh, I like the really, you know, oh, I like the characters. Are you mm-hmm. a characters person or a background person? Well, I'm more a characters person. Well, now you're a shipper. You, know, <laughs> and you have nothing to do with big, ugly ships at the coast. So, uh, vessels, but... Well, I, yeah. I, I, I caught a, I caught an interesting thing in the, I think it was the premiere of this season of Discovery. Um, it was, it was almost like a direct reaction to fan reactions that nobody knew who anybody was on Discovery exactly. <laughs> outside of, yeah. outside of Michael. And Pike asks for a roll call on the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, there's writers paying attention to people's complaints. Well, yeah. And <laughs> I, yeah, again, there are a lot of things those writers wanted to do. The writers that wound up with the show by halfway through the first season knew what they wanted to do. They knew what they wanted to fix, you know, yeah. or tweak or massage. I, I always liken it back to Wiley Coyote on the Acme rocket shoes. 
Like, <laughs> he's still going forward, but is he really on top of the shoe or are they dragging him along? And that's what, it, you know, and about the time he gets on top of the shoes is when he hits the cliff or right. runs over the cliff, you know? So, um, so that's, I you know, this season people are like, oh my God, it's so much better this year. And I said, well, I've kind of been saying that for a year. That's obviously what's going to happen because there's too many talented people and too many fanboys and fangirls on the staff for it to happen. It was just recovering from, you know, going through, I say it's like being in a taxi driving from LA to New York and your driver changes three times and the car never stops. Right. Well, and, and, it, and it is like any other group activity, right? It takes a while for everybody to kind of sync together, oh, sure. get on the same rhythm, have the same vision, share, share that kind of direction that you're going until everybody's in sync, kind of pulling in multiple places and it doesn't quite gel right away. You oh, know, yeah. it, take, it takes time. All, yeah. all TV shows take a little bit of time. But especially to find when, you're, when you're a head writer or your driver or your pilot, you know, changes three times in the first year. Or year and a half <laughs> right. Or yeah, that's, that's really tough. That's going to be especially stressful. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but that's what all that is. And, and, and that's what, and before we, you know, we have to say bye here before uh, uh, all of that's what led me into 10 years of after enterprise was gone. And Trek, I say was in the fallow times in this, in our community, in our world. And, Mm-hmm. Even the JJ movies bringing, oh, I just knew. I said, okay, well, I hope, I hope it's good. I, I don't care about the format. It's like, to me, it's like, well, they're good stories about fake people. Because <laughs> are you going to, are you going to flesh out this, you know, JJ verse or this, now that it's the Kelvin universe timeline, are you going to flesh right. this out and make it relevant? Or is it just going to be two hours every, they finally did some comics, you know, and some novels, but even then what's on screen? Because I felt bad. I felt like, and I really to the cranky old man on the lawn stage of life, but there were a lot of other people who wanted, Trek people, who really wanted, no one wishes the movies badly, but we mm-hmm. just want our series back on TV in the Prime Universe because that's what everybody, there's 700 hours of that, and that's what Star Trek's strength more than any other storytelling franchise. Now we've got all these genre shows, you know, from the start, you know, Star Wars first, Yes, Doctor Who, but it took the Americans to show them how to market it, so, <laughs> right? Since the eighties and nineties, sacrilege! Don't well, say that. No, I'm, I'm saying it has <laughs> but a no, proud you're right. history, but it, it was also in the DNA to change. You know, after the first regeneration, it's got that whole generational thing. You know, handled until they run out of absolute numbers, and now they have to you know change the canon on that. But <laughs> my point is that all of the, you know, and comic books have been around, but not at this insane degree. Thank you, yeah. CGI. Thank you, you know, just media culture and internet and social media and all that. But Star Trek like, was the original granddaddy of showing everybody else how to write the book on fandom, on how to conduct, you know, studio fandom relations or how not to, what celebrities of those things look like, what's expected in fandom. And, and TV and movies were, you know, different. And a movie cast for Trek was going to have to behave differently than a TV. All those things the last 10 years have, have, have been interesting to watch and and kept it very fresh so while i'm still a, i still love the tech heads and i'm still a canonista myself and love the background but you know behind the scenes and the making of is now in my wheelhouse and has been for a long time and 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 uh just watching these these changes change but for a long time there i was wondering what i was going to do when there was no trek actively going i used to edit the national magazine and that was a thing and and I want, you know, should I just go sell shoes and, and should I just go back to journalism and, and, you know, watch, be part of a dying breed there 
get get laid off in in Dead Tree Media or get paid nickels for my words on the online, you know, before the rule book was written. And people said, no, don't do that. You should take all the people you know and the stuff you saw and the things you have in your own collection and your own archive, and you should do something with that. And I'm like, well, what would that be? And it's like, well, I don't know. We're still writing the rule book. Uh, we'll tell you in a few <laughs> years. <laughs> you know. Meanwhile, uh, just starve a little. But now the last four or five years, I started working with an entrepreneur coach. And my Portal 47 is basically trying to take advantage of the internet and the software and the apps and just the state of mind of where everyone is. Right. And do, as I say, uh, f bring Star Trek fans who have no idea how much Star Trek they have no idea about and bring them all these voices that they've never heard, even at conventions and in interviews and, you know, magazines and podcasts and things and insights and marry, you know, connect the dots of the business and the, and the background world and the changing landscapes and the Star Trek they know and the Star Trek they never knew about and, and bring all that together in a way that we can get to everybody so that there is a, what I call a mini con all year long, no matter, <laughs> no matter where their center seat is. And that's what that's what Portal Forty Seven is. So I've got a I came I debuted with an entry level or the primary we call, and now I have a, a high level called Deck One, a, a kind of a premium, a first class version called Deck One. And I do Trekland treks, day tours of film sites, uh, day tours, and I have an event every once in a while. Coming one coming up here in February, President's Day weekend called Away Days, which is kind of Trekland treks on a schedule. So it's film <laughs> sites around LA, you know, just as a day or maybe two days. Very cool. And, um, and yeah, and, and trying to find um, levels that can appeal to everybody where I can have a business and I'm within the, you know, the, the fair use, the nonfiction side of Trek here. But I still do my column in the official magazine and I, and I did an official book. We just updated it, a maps and book set called Stellar Cartography, uh, which came out last fall again and, and trying to explore doing some other official books. And, um, and you know, and then there's the con and then talk at conventions still and see fans there and bring some of this, you know, trying to calm the waters, hear the legitimate complaints and criticisms because they're still there, and I have mine with discovery. But that crazy, the crazy, um, you know, the, the they're so passionate that every change is hurts. But yeah, you can go back <laughs> and see everybody who was screaming about next generation. They screamed about Next Generation. They screamed about Deep Space Nine. They yeah. screamed about Voyager. I mean, every oh, new Enterprise. show has its detractors. Enterprise, yes. Enterprise, I think, suffered more than any of them. Right. Well, there were the there were the faction that screamed about the Wrath of Khan for killing mm. off Spock, and they heard about it early and had mm -hmm. an actual organized marketing campaign and took a marketing survey and said, "You will lose twenty eight percent of your box office and thirty seven percent of your licensee expected revenue if you." If you leave Spock killed off, you know. Uh, here we are. Past spoilers. Yeah. Thirty something years later. <laughs> How about the fandom click that did not accept the third season of the original series because they thought Spock was bastardized? <laughs> they were not accepting the third season, the Freddy Friedberger year. This that is was... why I wanted to talk to you, Larry, because you contextualize all of it. And it's it's wonderful to have somebody who's got such a, a wide ranging knowledge of the history of all of this and can kind of let us all see it. Well, that's you know, what, that's like, what I've that's what I kind of fallen into. But I I always <laughs> still treasure the the moments when you can have a little puddle and have a fanboy moment. So I try to never let go of that too. Well, it's a fanboy moment for me to have you on my show. Aww. So you know, thank you so much. <laughs> 
I feel somewhat legitimized in my fandom now. <laughs> oh yes, very much so. Yeah. Well, I always, um, I always try to, you know, it's I. My worst fear is I, I, when this next generation was coming on, and I would hear that the loud ten percent griping about it, and I'm like, shut up. It's been 20 years. We've got Trek back and Gene is running it. Shut up. You know, I was in my 20s and I wasn't a little kid, but I always remember that moment when I were sitting now through the current days with Discovery. And even though my gut and my heart may be going one place, I try to step back and remember the big picture until, you know, and this too shall pass. And what can I offer those people who are, who are pained? Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the other new wrinkle of now is that we live in a dot, we live in a, in a bot and troll world. And there's yeah. all kinds of things that are being uncovered way beyond politics, you know, Gamergate and all of that. And not to open a new can of worms here, but there's a whole new level going on out there in social media that we're just beginning to grapple with. And people that good people that feel a little disheveled, you know, a little in the gut, like, oh, is the world, you know, there's a whole level going on affecting all ends of pop culture. And it's almost like a backhanded compliment that Star Trek, you know, it's back because it's on the radar scope of bot and troll world. And, and getting right. into that, you know, and oh, the truck and their social justice warriors. And have you ever watched the series? You know, since well, you know, it, my dad made a point once, uh, shortly before he passed away that, uh, when we were all growing up, we were expecting the technology to advance for hover cars and, mm -hmm. you know, space travel and whatever else. But the reality is, is what we got was a massive communications evolution yeah. that, that most of us didn't anticipate and didn't see coming and none of us are prepared for much and, less the WGA and SAG contracts, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're all just kind of stumbling through trying to figure out yeah. this new, new, new world we live in. Where's my flying uh, car and my jet? Yeah. <laughs> I think that would have been easier if we had just gotten those things. <laughs> <laughs> Midair collisions have multiplied by a thousand, but you know, <laughs> Well, since there's none right now, really, that's, that's, you know, it's not that many. We just collide <laughs> online is what we do. Yeah. yeah. Now we virtually collide and, and, uh, hurt each other's egos more than anything. Yeah. So yeah, well, Larry, yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah. We could go on. I, I started to say, I threw that out there at the risk of like, Oh, I know you're trying to get off. But, <laughs> but I, well, I could talk to you forever, but I do have to get to work too. So, <laughs> So, you know, I got to pay my bills, so I got to, yep. we got to run, but yeah. uh, I would love to have you back on again sometime down the road and, and, sure and chat again. Uh, cause I, I could talk to you forever. I mean, that's just really, it comes down to you. <laughs> sure thing. Well, I, I, I look forward to hopefully spread a little cheer here to your audience and, uh, yeah, just, you know, LarryNimichek.com come visit me and, um, and, uh, drop by the Tuesdays at one and, uh, hopefully people were, we're back February 19th with the Trek files too, being new. Awesome. Movie, so, Hey, real quick question. Are you going to go to long beach comic con? I have not been since the first year, but I, I need to get over there. I'm not down as I can't remember what time of year it is, but, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's in, two days. in, Feb it's in February. <laughs> um, it's not in two days. It's in like three weeks. Okay. Um, but, uh, there's a, there's a star Wars fan film playing there. Uh, where I play Yoda. Oh, um, awesome. Yoda. <laughs> I, I do the voice of Yoda in, in a Star Wars fan film, which you can actually see at StarWars.com right now. But uh, <laughs> oh, Okay, right. See, they turned and, and, and embraced their fan films and made it uh, a contest. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. We could have a whole episode just on that. <laughs> I, see, I didn't even mention Star Trek Continues, but I played McCoy in the first two, and I was a creative consultant for the whole series. And that's Yes, awesome. you did. Awesome experience and awesome product. And uh, Yeah.
I love fan filmdom. Let, let's let's do an episode of that down the road. Okay. We can just talk all about that. Okay. I have a <laughs> so few great. insights on that and a couple others do. So. I know you do, uh, and I look forward to hearing them. <laughs> okay. Anyway, David, thanks again. Thank you, Larry. Truck well. Hello there, citizens. I am the terror that flaps in the night. I am the floaty that will not flush no matter how many times you try in the toilet bowl of crime. I am Darkwing Duck. Telling you, please... Talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. <laughs> Whatever the heck that means. After all, you are watching Intellectual Podcast with your ears. Intellectual Podcast.